Welcome to the Creatives with AI podcast. This is a show where we share insights about the future of artificial intelligence and how it will affect the lives of people working in the creative industries. On today's show, we chat with Callum Chase, author of the book Surviving AI and co-host of the London Futurist podcast. In this show, we touch on the exceptional growth of technology in recent years, the four C's of superintelligence, and the effects of AI on education today. Callum is a sought-after keynote speaker and best-selling writer on artificial intelligence. He focuses on the medium and long-term impact of AI on all of us, our societies, and our economies. His non-fiction books on AI are Surviving AI, about strong AI and superintelligence, The Economic Singularity, about the prospect of widespread technological unemployment, and both are now in their third editions and available on Amazon. Callum also wrote Pandora's Brain and Pandora's Oracle, a pair of techno-thrillers about the first superintelligence. As well as authoring books, he's a regular contributor to magazines, newspapers, radio, and of course, podcasts. In the last five years, Callum has given over 120 talks in 18 countries on five continents. Videos of his talks and lots of other materials are available on his website at www.pandoras-brain.com. He's co-founder of a think tank focused on the future of jobs called the Economic Singularity Foundation, and the foundation has published Stories from 2045, a collection of short stories written by its members. Before becoming a full-time writer and speaker, Callum had a 30-year career in journalism and business as a marketer, strategy consultant, and CEO. He studied philosophy at Oxford University, which confirmed his suspicion that science fiction is actually philosophy and fancy dress. As always, links to Callum's profile, books, and social media will be in the show notes on our website at creativeswith.ai. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this enlightening conversation with Callum. So obviously, you've been writing and talking about AI for a long time, many years, in fact. What sort of got you set off on talking about AI in the first place? I blame it all on science fiction. Like a lot of people, I read a lot of science fiction as a kid, all the classics. And one of the tropes in a lot of science fiction is artificial intelligence, superintelligent minds. And I always thought that that would happen, but I always thought it wouldn't happen in my lifetime until in 1919, I read a book by a man called Ray Kurzweil, who I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Kurzweil is a curious figure. He is regarded by a lot of people as an out-and-out loony. But he deserves great credit for drawing many people's attention to the fact that we're living in a period of exponential growth in the power of our technology, and in particular, in the capabilities of computers. And of course, AIs are one aspect of computing. And he has been saying for a very long time that he thinks that because of this exponential growth in in chip power, basically, that we will have... On, in 2029, he's always been very specific. In 2029, we'll have a machine on the planet which has the processing power of a human brain. And for some reason, he thinks there's going to then be a 16-year delay be- before very much happens. But in 2045, he predicts a singularity. We won't go into the details of what that means, but essentially he means we that we will, <laughs> we will merge. <laughs> yeah. Or we can go yeah. into singularity if you like, but it's, it's a long and t- tedious technical conversation. But anyway, what, what Kurzweil thinks will happen in 2045 is we will merge with machines. So we will upload our minds into machines and become post-humans. And I was blown away by this idea when I read it in 1999. I thought, this is fantastic. And I also thought, I can see an awful lot that could go wrong. And he didn't seem to think that anything could possibly go wrong. So I thought, wow, more people need to be aware of this possibility. Obviously, not a definite future of the possibility. So I thought, how do you get people to be aware of something like that? Well, obviously, you, you get a movie made. And how do you get a movie made if you don't live in Hollywood and have lots of movie-making friends? You write a novel, and that will obviously get picked up by Ridley Scott or James Cameron and turned into a movie. So I wrote a novel in, in 2000. I've no idea how I did it, actually. I had a new child. I was busy running two businesses. I was busy as hell. But still, I, I did it. Uh, and perhaps as a result, it was really, really bad. It was awful. And I stuck <laughs> okay. it in a drawer. I stuck it in a drawer and forgot about it. And then a decade later, I retired and decided, because I don't play golf, I needed a hobby, and I decided to just, just follow my interest in AI. So I started reading lots and lots about it. And I dusted off the novel, rewrote it completely from scratch, 
And it's actually quite good, I think. And so I published that as Pandora's Brain that came out in early 2015. It was always partly a novel and partly a series of lectures about AI, what I understood of AI at the time. And my partner, Julia, very cleverly and diplomatically persuaded me to take out the lectures from the novel, which I was very reluctant to do because I thought they were important. Take them out and publish them separately as a nonfiction book, which I did. And that one was actually quite successful. The novel was okay. It did okay. But the, the nonfiction book, which is called Surviving AI, was quite successful. And people started asking me to give talks about it, which I thought, great, that would be good marketing for the book, which was exactly wrong. Yep, that's the one. It was exactly wrong. It turns out that books are good marketing for talks. <laughs> yep. So since 2015, I've been doing lots of talks, a lot, lot of them to business audiences, but also students and just all sorts of people. And I really like doing that. It's great fun. I love the interaction with audiences. I didn't think I was a stage personality, and I'm not really, but I do love it. I do love standing up and giving a talk to people who are kind enough to pay attention. And so I did that until COVID hit. Obviously, COVID stopped it, but yeah. it's coming back gradually now. So that, that's how I got into it. The listeners will know I did a, a bio of you before we got started. So at the very beginning of the podcast, I've, I've done your whole bio and everything. But you, you had a journalism background as well, didn't you? Partially. So my first job after university was as a trainee journalist at the BBC, which I did for a couple of years. But it, it never really sat well with me. And I moved from that into marketing and sales did that for five years. And then it, that was in Dubai as well as in London. And then I did an MBA and went into consulting. So most of my career, I've been a management consultant, but I've always written compulsively, I suppose. I've written diaries and letters and I, I take great care about the way, even I write emails, my family think I'm hilarious because I put full stops in texts. And I still do that as well. I yeah, think that's more showing our age than anything else. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very old school. And I did write uh, newspaper articles from time to time. I had a column in the FT for a while when I was a consultant. So it's been easy for me to get back into journalism because that is kind of what I do. I write a, I write a weekly article in Forbes at the moment. So uh, writing's always been a big part of my life. The reason I ask is because I think that coming from that sort of a background where you're used to, you know, the thought process that you have to do to write the stories and to do the journalism, I think really lends itself to being able to to put together a compelling, you know, sort of a keynote or a presentation, it's you kind of understand how to walk people through some sort of a story. And I think that that probably really helps. It's a shame. And maybe we can touch on that a little bit when we, when we talk about the future of AI and where we think it's going to go. Why do you think, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd like to hear your opinion on it. Why, why do you think AI has captured the imagination of so many people right now? GPT-4, in a word, GPT-4. I mean, ChatGPT was impressive. That was launched in November last year. But GPT-4 is quite remarkable. That was launched in March 14th this year. And it is nowhere near as good at writing essays, short stories, or anything else as a human, as, a, as a, an articulate human, but it's really impressive. It can give you the first draft of a short story or a, an essay or a, a chapter of a report. In an astonishing way, and it's remarkable, you put a prompt in the prompt line and this text appears just like a sort of the old trashing teletext. It's, it's quite magical to watch it happening. So people, for the first time ever, are able to play with a really advanced AI and see it working in real time. We've had access to advanced AI for quite a while, since the first big bang in AI, which is 2012, which is when deep learning arrived. And, and that gave us things like Google Maps and Translate. Chase uh, recognition software, which are miracles, but you can't kind of see under the hood, you can't see them working. This second big bang in AI, which is the arrival of transformer AI technology and laterally GPT-4, means people can see it happening. They can see it in really firsthand real life. And it's working people up. And to, to the extent that politicians are talking about it and having to become okay with it, I'm sure you know of the I, I don't know if you fancy mentioning a rival podcast on, on this, but of course, the rest is politics is a very well-known podcast. And today's episode of that has Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart talking about AI and, and they've gone up a very steep learning curve because I've been listening to them and a month ago, they knew very little about it. In today's podcast, they give quite a decent description of what it is, how it's got to where it is and what the implications are. So yeah, the world has woken up and, and it's about time too. 
this is an unpopular thing to say, but I think Sam Altman deserves a great deal of credit, the, the, the CEO of OpenAI, in launching a service which has finally woken people up to what's coming. I saw Sam last week when he was here um, at UCL, and it was very interesting to see him speaking in person about it, considering that he's been traveling around the world doing this roadshow where allegedly he's been telling all the governments that we need to have some sort of you know, restrictions on AI and we need to put some sort of regulations in place. But then he came to the event and that's not at all what he said. What he said at the event was, is he talked a lot more about the economic stimulation potential of AI and how it would be able to really drive economies and we had to grow and the AI could be a very supportive tool in that. He didn't mention any sort of regulations or anything once in the whole talk that he gave, which I found very, very interesting. And I agree with you. I think, you know, this tool came out and it, and it is magical in a lot of ways. And I use it all the time, but I use it for things like I'll write something and then I'll say, rewrite this for me. Because most of the time it can rephrase something, particularly in kind of business speak or, or formal language, because I think that's really what it was trained on mostly. And so it seems to do that kind of language very, very well. So I have it do that, or I have it, it's very good at analyzing and summarizing information. So if you do something like a survey and you give it all the survey results and say, summarize this for me, it's amazing at doing that sort of thing. And then it doesn't seem to make up stuff. You know, we talk about it hallucinating and, and, and I understand why it does that. It's not hallucinating, but it's just in the way that it chooses the words. And sometimes it'll go down a rabbit hole that just doesn't really make sense. But when you give it a fixed set of information to work with, I mean, that is, is, is incredible how quickly and how succinctly it can do that kind of work. Have you, have you I mean, I assume you use it and, and play around with it quite often. What sort of things do you use it for? I have. I've used it a lot. And the main thing I use it for now is, as well as writing about AI, I write about travel because um, my partner and I spend quite a lot of time traveling. I was going to ask if those were yours. That's my last question on the list is, are the travel books on Amazon also you? Uh, well, if they if they buy Bigby and Chase, then yes. And we've got now, I think, 15. I just published Rome yesterday. Uh, I haven't figured out a way to market those yet. And so there's, there's, there's very little sales for them. But So I use uh, GPT-4 to write the first draft of each of the chapters. So for instance, if I'm writing about the Colosseum, that would be a chapter in the Rome book. I will, you know, I only write about the places we've been and got lots of photos of because they're illustrated books. And I will read dozens of articles about the Colosseum. And then based on that, I will create the prompt, which is generally only about five or six lines, and then put that into GPT-4, which will produce the first draft of the chapter. And I've pre-trained GPT-4, you, you make bots, and I pre-trained the bot with six of my previous books. So it knows the kind of writing style to aim for. And the first draft that it produces is pretty good. It's not quite in the right writing style. It's too verbose. I like to hope, I, I aim for a sort of levity and a bit of a sort of dry humor, and it doesn't get anywhere near that. But it will produce the basics, and that's, that speeds up my production process. It probably doubles the speed or halves the time it takes, and that's enormously useful. And it makes it more fun as well. I mean, as I say, I just love to see the, the text appearing on the page, and the whole process is, is less scary and less hard, so it's, it's very useful. Doing that, it does hallucinate. So what I used to do among the prompts was describe a couple of funny episodes which happened at this venue. And every time it made them up. So I used to have to go off and check them and take them out. So I stopped asking for that because it obviously doesn't seem to know how to do that bit. I quite like that the way it responds to follow-up requests. So I'll say things like, that's good, but can you provide a version with, with less flowery and less verbose language. And it will have a go, but it doesn't manage to take much out. Yeah. And once, this really surprised me, once it told me a joke, it just stuck a joke in it at the end. Just and randomly said, only, put only a joke kidding. in. Yeah, and it wasn't a great <laughs> joke, but it wasn't awful. It was probably about as good as most of my jokes. And, and I hadn't asked it to do that. And I was really quite surprised. I'm interested to hear you say that when you ask it to summarize things and pricey things, that it doesn't hallucinate, which makes sense because it's working with a fixed set of ideas and it not, it's not being asked to bring something new to the party. So that would make sense that it wouldn't hallucinate them. 
Let's just talk about um, Sam Altman, though, and what he said and, and what he's saying to different audiences. Sure. Um, I've had the great privilege of talking to him on a phone call with a bunch of friends, and he was very much the same then as I've seen him talking to Congress and so on. He's, he seems a pretty consistent guy, and I'm enormously impressed with Altman. He's super bright. I think he's, his heart is very much in the right place, and I think he's doing sensible things. So I'm a, I, I'm a bit of a fan. It makes sense to me that he would talk to governments about regulation but talk to a lay audience about something else. I mean, nothing drives most of us to sleep as talk about as quickly as talk about regulation, but it's something that governments need to think about. It's their, it's their job. And I also agree with him that AI can and will have enormous beneficial effects. It already has, as I say, with Google Translate and Google Maps and all the rest of it. You know, th those are miracles, which I think it's an underestimated kindness of Google that they give them to us free. I know we're giving up our data for advertising, but I, I yet to determine any harm caused to myself by doing that. So we, we've had great benefits, but the benefits to come in the future from AI are, are going to be staggering. You can already see shadows of it in Alpha Fold, which works out how, to, how, how 200 million proteins fold, which is pretty much life, in, life on earth. The way the proteins fold very much determines the way they behave. And if you understand how biology works, you can improve people's healthcare. And that's going to be a huge benefit. Education is going to be transformed. I like to think that within a, de within a generation, almost certainly, and quite possibly within five years, students will have their own personal tutor, an AI, which knows everything about what they already know. It knows everything about what they need to know next. And it knows how they learn best and how best to coach and encourage and cajole them. And it's, it will be as if we're all Alexander the Great and we've got our own personal Aristotle. And when that happens, I mean, people say it's already here, but it isn't really. But when it does happen, people coming out of schools and universities will have had an education which will make ours look foolish and archaic. And that's going to be really interesting. You know, we've got the, we'll have this generation of people who are massively smarter or at least massively better educated than the rest of us. That's going to be very interesting. So I think Allman's quite right. You know, there's going to be huge, huge benefits, but he's not neglecting to, to acknowledge that there could be enormous harms, really enormous harms. Yeah. You're absolutely right about the education point. And I have, I have a couple of professors from Cambridge University who are going to come on in a couple of weeks and actually talk about how they see where, how they see AI working into their workflows and how they work. And obviously this is at university level. I think Primary school and, and very early education will pretty much be the same as, as it is now. Although you're right, we could develop some sort of custom learning tools that, that may help them. One of the things I know that Vaughn, I think it was Vaughn that was talking about is he said, you know, one of the areas that might be really interesting is to use it to give feedback on things like papers and reports that students write. And it can actually give them very good feedback and give, and, and the professors won't have to do it. And they'll be able to just do it automatically. So somebody could write a paper, they can put it in and say, give me feedback. It'll help them with coaching and teaching them how to write better and all that, all those sorts of things that maybe the professors don't have time to do one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. You know, they, they saw a lot of opportunity there. And also for, um, for some of the students maybe that struggle because they either have difficulties or, you know, they're neurodiverse or something like that, that, that it gives it will give them a different way potentially to learn that that the you know that, that they wouldn't get normally in a normal sort of standard education environment and it would really be able to support them and to help them be able to learn better in a different way yeah when we send kids to school we it, unless we're rich and send them to private schools we we send them to schools where there are somewhere between 20 and 30 children in a class a teacher ratio of one to 30 is really tough for the teacher. You've got to be an exceptional human being to inspire, discipline, and educate 30 kids at the same time. Doing it one-to-one -one is, is far more effective. And we can't afford to pay for one teacher, one child in a school. But with AI, that's what we can achieve. And we can have, you know, better teachers than the best teachers, ultimately. That'll take a while. But so I think that... Primary schools and secondary schools will be transformed by this technology. Will be, you know, they'll be unrecognizable. And I'm pleased that the education industry has got over its collective mental breakdown about the arrival of GPT-4, which is entirely understandable. You know, cracky, how do we do exams? Can't do exams anymore. 
it's all it's all over. Let's jump off a cliff. They've they've got over that, and they're now thinking about how they can use this fantastically versatile and powerful tool. And there's going to be endless ways, most of which we can't even imagine at the moment. It's, it's going to turbocharge education and healthcare, yeah. particularly, but also every other aspect of life. It's going to be interesting. I mean, my answer to that about exams is is you just put people in a room and have them write stuff down. Do you know which what is I mean? what it's, we used to do. Which is what we used to do, right? So I, um, you know, my yeah. son's doing his GCSEs at the minute, and that's what he has to do. You know, they go into a room, they don't have any mobiles with them, they don't have any access to the, to the internet. Yeah. And they have to sit down and handwrite their answers, which I don't, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So you're absolutely right. Since you've been sort of following this for so long, I'm curious to kind of, where do you think that there have been maybe surprises? Like, have you, have you seen, have you been surprised in, in any unexpected ways that people are using AI already that maybe you didn't think about in the beginning? I don't think so, no, because the broad sweep of it is pretty much what I and many others expected. I suppose I'm surprised about the progress comes in lurches. So there have been long periods where you thought, oh, right, we've had a lurch. Now things are going to really accelerate, and then it all goes a bit quiet again. So after the first big bang in 2012, the arrival of deep learning, I wasn't aware of that happening at the time, and it became evident a couple of years later when Google bought DeepMind and, and then... AlphaGo beat the world's best player of Go. That was a, a huge, there was a huge flurry of interest. And I thought, okay, this is the time when it picks up, when everybody else around the world pays attention. And they did for a while. 2015 really was the, the year of the great, great robot freakout. And there was a picture of the Terminator in every single newspaper every day. And then it all went fairly quiet again. And now there's this big flurry. And I dare say it will go quiet again as people just sort of absorb this new capability. But I think the flurries will get quicker and faster because of the exponential rate of progress, which means you know, it keeps accelerating. And indeed, this time, maybe it won't, maybe the flurry won't die down because the, the new advances will keep coming and coming. And next week on Monday, Apple's launching its first major foray into mixed reality with some augmented reality glasses. They're going to cost $3,000, um, but and they are insanely high spec. And they're going to be very, very impressive. Of course, I wasn't doing things by house. So maybe the metaverse is coming back. You know, there was a lot of stuff about it when Zuckerberg changed the name of his company and when was it 2020 or 21, I forget. And don't mention the, meta- the M word. <laughs> I'm less down on meta than most people. That's another one of my unpopular opinions. So the metaverse was big, you know, a big deal. And, and everybody then said, oh, it's gone dead and it's, it's, or it's all old hat. But of course, it's, it's not dead. It's just taking a rest and it's coming back. And maybe it's going to come back on Monday. So that'll be the next big flurry, possibly. So I think I'm not surprised by any of the things that have happened, the way AI is being used. I'm always a bit surprised that things take longer than they should. And then suddenly they go in a hurry. Overall, I'm surprised that it's taken a decade for, you know, since, since we all had the first round of it, that um, politicians have started to pay attention. But I'm just grateful that they have because the changes that are coming are so big, it's not a good idea for us to sleep more into them. 100%. We're going to get to that in a minute. One of the things that surprised me is how quickly big companies have brought it on board. So you look at someone like Adobe and... You know, you've got Adobe Photoshop and the new AI tools that they have in Photoshop that will, you know, you've probably seen them in the last couple of days. They've, they've got their Firefly tool, which is one thing, but this thing they've added actually already into, into Photoshop where you can take an image and you can expand it and just say, you know, I want this to look like that and it will continue the image out. And I've been really, really shocked at how quickly companies like that have said, oh yeah, okay, we've got an AI element. I mean, it seems like every single tool that I use, whether it's Notion or it's Adobe or whatever, now has some AI. I mean, Microsoft is putting it into all its products overnight. Like in, in a traditional kind of software development you know, thing where you've got something like Microsoft Office, like getting a new feature into Microsoft Office has, you know, in the past has taken ages, months and months, sometimes years to get it worked in. Whereas this has happened in, what, three months? I don't know what you think about that. But to me, that's been really shocking how quickly it's just rolled out all over the place. And I wonder what impact that's going to have on some of those tools as well. I mean, it's like Photoshop. Most of the stuff that, that's done in Photoshop, people who are really good at Photoshop already could do anyway. Like Midjourney, the Pope in a puffer jacket. Like 
it's a great looking image. It's amazing. It's, you know, a lot of people liked it, but anybody who was, you know, even halfway decent with Photoshop could have made that image anyway. But it would have taken them 10 times as long. Maybe. Yeah, it would. No, it, de yeah, it definitely sure. would have taken them yeah. a lot longer. And, and as you say, you had to be reasonably good at Photoshop to do it. I haven't yet played with Firefly on, on Photoshop and I'm really looking forward to doing it. I saw the demo yesterday. It's absolutely staggering. And uh, if, they can re if it really can do that, I'm, I'm going to be <laughs> using it all the time. But actually, I'm always surprised that the companies are so slow in, in adopting advanced AI. I mean, if you think about the size of the businesses that Meta and Google and, uh, and Amazon and Apple have built using AI since the Big Bang in 2012, they, these are gargantuan businesses, the big, biggest businesses in the world. But outside the tech giants, Deep learning isn't deployed all that much. And there's some good reasons for that. Essentially, if you deploy a deep learning system, it has to learn. The name is on that, but that description is on the tin, which means they have to make mistakes. And if you're running, say, Coca-Cola and you've got a bottling plant churning through vast amounts of liquid, you don't want a system which is going to make a mistake while, it, while optimizing that, that process. Uh, because you'll create a lake of Coca-Cola where there wasn't one. So it, it's understandable, but it's it's interesting that they've been so slow to adopt deep learning. And actually, I think the same thing's happening with generative AI. I mean, you're using it to great effect. I'm using it to great effect. I don't see a doubling in productivity across the economy. And I think the reason for that is that large companies quite sensibly are discouraging and in some cases banning their employees from using these tools if there is any danger of their own data or of customer data getting back into the models, which there is in many cases. So it, I thought by now we would see the economists all shaking their heads and wondering how there'd suddenly been this doubling of productivity across the economy. And it hasn't happened yet. It will happen, but it's just going to take longer than I thought because it just does take us humans longer to get used to a new tool. I saw something the other day that said that Although about three quarters of Americans have heard of GPT, only like 20% of them have tried it. Now that makes me think, what on earth are these people doing? Where are their heads? But still, that, that's the way we are as a, as a species. We are quite slow to, to pick things up. I've kind of had the feeling recently that it, it feels like a very small group of tech people and people in the creative industries, I think, are the ones who really are paying a lot of attention to it. People who do service jobs and things like that. In general, this is a broad, um, I'm using a broad brush here, but people who don't use it or aren't directly affected by it in their day-to-day -day jobs don't seem to know as much about it because it just doesn't come, you know, it, it hasn't been a, a topic of conversation. Whereas I work in a serviced office that's all made for creatives. So we have people in all sorts. We have designers, we have copywriters, we have journalists, we have, you know, software designers, we've got UI, UX people, we've got all sorts of people here. And every day since... February, it's all we talk about in the lunchroom, you know, and. And are you all more productive now, do you think? Yes. So, so I wonder when the economists will pick this up. I think that, I think it'll, what's it called? A lagging indicator. So mm. I think it's, I, I think it will take a while for it to filter through, but I, I know that there are, and, and you sort of hit on this a little bit earlier, but there are people who are losing work already, particularly mm. copywriters and designers are losing a lot of their let's say they're smaller customers. So, you know, the people who maybe were small businesses or startups that needed a little bit of help writing LinkedIn content and short form content for blog posts and tweets and, and that sort of thing. The people who did that, they've lost all that business. It, it's going, there, there are people in my office who've lost half their revenue because, you know, people have said, look, I don't, I don't need it anymore. I can just, ChatGPT is good enough. It's not perfect. It's probably not as good as the content that you could create, but it's good enough for me. So I suspect there's a, an iceberg effect here that what will happen is that there will be an enormous amount more images made a around the world. And instead of just sending emails to each other, we'll send an email with a, an appropriate illustration, which we'll have made for the purpose, which obviously there was never any possibility of paying another human to make, but if a machine can do it for free, then why not? And I think probably the people who are currently saying, oh, I can actually get Midjourney to do this. They're probably going to come back in the market because they're going to find that that level of capability isn't quite good enough to differentiate themselves in the way that they want to. So they'll come back and use the 
newly hyper-skilled humans to do, again, a cheap service because they will be using the journey to get the first bit done, but they will want some tailoring. I think the, you know, in, in the short term, in the medium term even, what automation does is it creates an enormous amount more supply and it, that, that jiggles, the, jiggles the, the industry around and there are winners and losers and the losers can go through a very uncomfortable time. But ultimately, it ends up with there being more work rather than less for humans. I do think in the longer term, we're going to get to the point where there's more work, but it's work for machines. Well, that's a separate subject, which we should come to later. But I think that it's certainly going to be an uncomfortable and difficult time. And it is really interesting that this particular round of AI is, is so germane and appropriate for people in the creative industries. You know, you, you guys are getting it right down the barrel. Whereas if you're a lawyer, you have a first go at having GPT to, to write a, a, a submission and it gets enough wrong that you think, no, can't not using that again. I mean, there's a lawyer famously in New York at the moment who's really ruining not having checked <laughs> the output of GPT-4 before we sent it to the judge. Something that Sam said in, in his talk, and this is the same thing that I kind of think the direction that this is going to go, and I'm interested to know what you think about this, is he basically said that the, at least in the medium term, we're not going to have some super intelligence that's going to be AGI, that's going to be sort of fully aware. What we're going to have is essentially a federated system where you're going to have a controlling AI and it will connect to specialist AI tools to, that will do different tasks. So if you want to play chess, you, you're talking to the main controller and you can say, hey, I'd like to play a game of chess. And it'll go, great love to play chess with you and it just reaches out through an api to the chess api to the chess ai and gets the information from there or if you say hey i've got a i've got a mathematics problem and i need to create an algorithm it goes great and it reaches out to wolfram or you know whatever and i think at least in the short term i i agree because i work with data i've worked with data for a long time about the past 20 years so data analysis and and data visualization and that kind of thing and I do a bit of work in consulting with public sector at the minute, and I think that's what's happening in public sector as well, is you've got all these different parts of data, and there's no way to bring the data and combine it together, but what you do is you have this federated system that sits over the top. Do you think, do you agree, do you think that's the way that it's going to go, and then eventually we'll get to some sort of AGI, or do you think that it'll just end up staying as a federated system? Well, first of all, I wouldn't really want to disagree with Altman about the way things are here because he's in a much better position <laughs> to know because he's making it. Um, yeah, go also, ahead. also, he's a lot smarter than me. But so, yes, I think he is right. I see a lot of stuff on Twitter about how people are chaining together AGIs and using baby AGI and sorry, not chaining together AIs, not AGIs, and using baby AGI and auto GPT and things like that. I don't see anybody actually plausibly proving that they're doing much. Um, and I don't know of anybody else who is doing that. I think there's a lot of hype going on in that area, but it makes sense. I'm sure that will happen and it will be the way it works for a while. But eventually, as he says, and he's very upfront about this, we'll probably get to superintelligence. The only thing we don't know is when, and when it happens, it's going to be the most important thing in all of human history ever. And we ought to be thinking a lot more about it because the implications are massive. I used to think it would probably be 50 to 70 years, and that's, you know, with, with very little confidence in that timeline, but, but that's a reasonable guess. Now I think it's going to be probably a lot sooner than that. No, I totally agree. I think the way I always try and explain it, at least that I have it in my mind, is that, you know, sort of, I think AI at the minute is like dial-up used to be, and um, people who've listened to other episodes are probably getting tired of hearing this, but, you know, AI is dial-up. It's clunky, doesn't always work, doesn't always do what we want it to do. It's loud. You know, sometimes it doesn't work at all, but, you know, it took 20 years from dial up to pretty regular high speed internet. AI is, is at that stage at the minute, but it's not going to take nearly as long. It's probably going to take five years for it to make the equivalent sort of jump in functionality and reliability. And we do need to start talking about it, which is exactly why I started this and, and to have these conversations. So let's, let's get to the elephant in the room. So I, I've been reading Surviving AI. And in the book, you talk a lot about the ethical sort of considerations that we need to, you know, that we need to build in when we're sort of developing and deploying AI. What are your current thoughts on ethics and how we need to approach that? 
There's two types of risk from AI. The first is what people often talk about as AI ethics, which I think is a bad word because it makes people get very self-righteous. You know, if, if you think something is a matter of ethics, then not only is somebody that you disagree with wrong, they're also bad. And I think that's very unhelpful. So I prefer the term responsible AI. And that's, that covers issues like privacy, bias, transparency, um, the questionable claim that AI is helping to create shorter bubbles and, and it's helping to create polit political polarization. Personally, I don't think that last thing is true. I think Richard Murdoch's got a lot more to do with polarization than social media has. But those sorts of issues are the purview of, of responsible AI and they're short-term issues and they're important and we need to, we need to solve them. And then there's a longer term set of issues, which is usually referred to as AI safety or AI alignment. And that's about superintelligence. That's about whether we can make an entity which is much smarter than us safe to be around, safe for us. Now, I take a pretty radical view about this. When we have a superintelligence on the planet, when we create it, and I don't think we can avoid creating it, when we create it, we will become like chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are currently the second smartest species on the planet. There's half a million of them, a bit less. There's eight billion of us. The future of chimpanzees depends entirely on us, both the individual chimpanzees and as a species. They have no say in their future whatsoever. And we will, I'm afraid, be in the same boat when it comes to superintelligence. It will quite quickly become a million times smarter than the smartest human who ever lived. We are not going to be able to control it. It's just obviously impossible. And I also don't think, and I, and I, I don't really like saying this out loud, but might as well be honest. I don't think we can set, it, set up its initial conditions so that it is always aligned with our interests and always stays that way. It will have its own goals. It will make its own goals up. And when it's a million times smarter than us, we can't predict what they will be like. I, I talk about four C's when it comes to superintelligence. There are four possible outcomes. The first is cease. The first is the idea as indicated by the Future of Life FLI letter asking for a six-month moratorium in development of advanced AI. Cease is the idea that we just stop developing advanced AIs, which is probably the most rational thing to do. You know, if, you, if you're in the process of developing something which has a possibility of wiping you out, not just killing quite a few of you, but absolutely exterminating a lot, and possibly in nasty ways, then the logical thing to do is not do it. You know, why the hell would you? Except we can't not do it because even if we got everybody in America, everybody in Europe, everybody in China to agree to, to stop, and actually I think that's possible. I think that might happen. Putin wouldn't stop. Kim, Kim Jong-un wouldn't stop. There are billionaires who wouldn't stop. And there are mafia organizations who wouldn't stop. So having a moratorium, sadly, it's a great idea, but it's sadly, I think the only upshot of it would be to make sure that superintelligence arrived in bad actors' hands, which is obviously not great. So I don't think cease is possible. Control is the second C, and that's the idea that we somehow manage to monitor and control the behavior of something much, much, much faster than us, or set it up in such a way that it always remains aligned with our values. Again, I don't think that's possible. The third possible outcome, the third C, is catastrophe which is that it does decide to wipe us out or does something even worse than that, or decides to keep the tame ones and wipe out the other half. You know, it, it could do really awful things. And there are a lot of people who think that's an inevitable outcome if we have superintelligence. I don't follow that argument. I don't really buy it. I think there is a fourth C, which I call consent. Not a very good word, but I can't think of another word that begins with C that captures it. And consent is the idea that the superintelligence likes us and understands us very well and decides to help us. Not just keeps us around, although that would be okay, better than the alternative, but actually decides to Hopefully. help us flourish. Yeah. So it, you know, it says, look, you, you, you are quite miraculous, but you have this terrible, unfortunate habit of dying after about, you know, somewhere between 80 and 120 years old. So why don't we fix that and make it so that you don't have to do that? And why don't we, you know, make it possible for you to travel between stars and do all sorts of wonderful things. And that's, that's the fourth C and that's the one I fervently hope for. And I actually think there's a decent chance of it, but I can't deny the fact that it's a bit of a crapshoot and we are not in charge and we will not be in charge. To support your idea of the fourth C, looking at it from a, I guess from one perspective is, is that the AI should be smart enough to realize that we're the ones that keep the power on. 
And so if they want to, if it wants to stay alive, it needs to have power and we're the only ones that can provide that. I, I, think, I, that's don't, I think that's totally wrong. There's, there's, I don't think it's going to get to the point that it's going to be able to self-sustain. Why not? Nuclear power or solar power. Why not? Because once, I don't, once it has that shift to the internet, it can create an army of robots that could do whatever it needs to do physically. But the robots can't do that. I think that's the, the limiting factor. And robotics is a whole different thing, which I guess lends, it goes back into something that I did want to touch on a little bit, which is, you know, there are a lot of people that say AI is going to kill and wipe out humanity. I'm like, well, how does that actually happen? Oh, I, it's I, not hard. If you're smart, I if still you're don't million, see it. If you're a million times smarter than Einstein, figuring out how to, how to kill a Kill eight billion humans is not. It's quite trivial. I mean, you just you just remove, remove the oxygen from the atmosphere, or set off a few nuclear bombs. It's not. It's not hard. We're quite vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's quite a long way away. I don't think robotics is anywhere near as advanced actually as AI. I think AI has taken a massive leap ahead of robotics, and at least I'm hoping. Well, think about the rate <laughs> of progress. I mean, if you think back to 2015 and the DARPA Grand Challenge in robotics. The robots that they had, including the early Boston Dynamics Atlas robot, they were pathetic. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't stand up for a few minutes. They couldn't walk. They couldn't get through a door. Now they're doing backflips and somersaults, and they're better dancers than I am. I'll admit that's a that's a fairly low bar. But Me too. Yeah, you know, they, they, <laughs> they've advanced at incredible rate, and just project that out with exponential improvement. Yeah, an AI, by the time the superintelligence arrives, I dare say it'd be possible to put together an army of robots to build and maintain all the, all the nuclear power stations you'd want. They still can't fold a sheet. They still can't, what's right? They still can't fold a sheet, which is True. apparently that's like the Turing test for a robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can it fold a sheet? And that's like one of the most difficult problems that they have is yeah. that's like something uniquely human that a human can do because it's really awkward and... Anyway, I learned that from somebody who was a roboticist, and I thought that was really funny. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, there was one there was one that created by the University of Berkeley, which could do it, but it took like an hour or something to fold a single sheet. But, you know, we have to bear in mind always the exponential rate of improvement. These things, we, when you're on an exponential curve, you are always at the beginning of the journey. And what happens tomorrow always makes what happened yesterday look trivial. Because every step of an exponential journey is equal to the sum of all the previous steps. And we just always forget that. It means that robots in 10 years' time are going to be 100 times better than they are now. And at that rate, you know, they'll be able to do quite remarkable things. So how do you see it playing out then? Like I say, I hope we get consent, but I think catastrophe is not impossible. And I really cannot tell you what the odds are for each of those outcomes. I think cease is impossible. I think control is impossible. I think catastrophe is possible. I think consent is possible. I like to think that, control, that, that consent is more likely than catastrophe because we would not be a threat to a superintelligence. It wouldn't announce its existence to us until it had made itself utterly invulnerable. You know, it, it had insinuated itself right through the internet, which is already impossible for us to turn off. Uh, and, and it had complete invulnerability. So if, if we're not a threat to it, I would hope that it might find us interesting and entertaining. And it might well, I don't know whether it will have emotions, but if it does, it might be, it might feel some gratitude towards us for having created it. So I, I personally think that consent is more likely than catastrophe, but that's just wild speculation, really. I talked a few weeks ago to a gentleman, Alex Burton, who's a retired admiral, uh, two-star admiral from the Royal Navy. And we talked a lot about sort of the arms race that we're in at the minute. And it sort of goes into your maybe control and catastrophe. Thing and also cease, but there's no way to cease it, like you said, because anybody with a laptop can train a model locally on some data, upload it to AWS to a free account, and have essentially unlimited compute power, you know, at least for a certain amount of time before somebody fig figured out what was going on. And so that's the risk there, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful, like you, that maybe we'll come to some balance. You know, the other thing around the ethics question also is whose ethics. And somebody, um, there was a lady named Suki that I was listening to the other day. I think it was her that was talking about, we can't talk about ethics. What we should talk about is human rights. Because there is, there is an international agreement on human rights of what the basic human rights are. And maybe that's where we start with bringing in regulations about how AI behaves or something like that. Because we're never going to agree on ethics because the, 
the liberal Western European ethics is different than the North American ethics, which are you know different than the Middle Eastern ethics. And this is where I'm doing a sort of mental exercise. I kind of thought that these controllers are going to come in. So you're going to have these controlling units that will kind of manage the ethics and the the biases and all those things that are built in for whatever area they're based in. So you may be able to connect or ask questions of different ones, depending on where you are and what they have access to. And they might be the things that kind of control what's going on. But then you get in a situation if they start to battle and somebody says, well, I want this to be the, I want us to win. I want everybody to use this one. And then who knows what will happen from there. So, And this is why I don't like the use of the word ethics in this context, mm. because it does tend to make people quite self-righteous. You know, my, my opinion is right, and you're not just making a pragmatic mistake. You're also a bad person if you don't agree. That's not very helpful. No, not at all. Well, that's pretty bleak. <laughs> no, no, no. No, well, you know, the th thing is, it is important to think about the upsides as well as the downsides. The downsides are real, but the upsides are enormous. The upsides are this awful thing that happens to all humans so far in history that we die could stop and children could stop losing their parents and people could met, get to meet their great, great, great grandparents. Um, and we could acquire, which it, it, it's a silly thing to or it sounds like a silly thing to say, but we could become like minor gods. We could become like minor deities. So they're Greek gods rather than Abrahamic gods. And I just think that would be wonderful. So a friend of mine says that Elon Musk said that there's a danger that we are the bootloader for machine intelligence. A bootloader is a very basic piece of software which ramps up another, another piece of software, starts it up. And that's the bleak view. The optimistic view is that we are like the mitochondria in the eukaryote cell, which will arrive once machine superintelligence is here. We are the thing which started it, and we are an integral part of it as it develops. That's the positive outcome. And it's an outcome of unbridled wonderfulness. Let's hope it happens. I hope so. So I'm a little conscious of time. I did have one thing that I wanted to ask you, though, is again, as somebody who talks about this a lot and has been looking at it for a long time, what I wonder, what's the thing that nobody talks about? Is there something that, that, that people don't, maybe they've missed or something that, that you think from you know, having studied it for so long, what's the one thing that we're actually missing or what's the one thing that no one ever asks you about that you'd really like to talk about or point out? I suppose it's the economy of abundance. Let me explain what I mean by that. The, the big issue, the really, really big issue in AI is superintelligence. Can we survive it? And that now is on the map. And as I say, politicians are talking about it. Hooray. And people do talk about the future of jobs, which is the other singularity. So it's the one that will happen first if it happens. And that, that's when automation has become so pervasive and powerful that machines can do pretty much all the jobs that humans can do for money. And I say jobs rather than work because humans will always work. We'll always have projects and things that we do for fun and for self-fulfillment, but we just won't get paid from because there's always a machine that can do it cheaper, better, and faster. And people dis discuss that and mostly people poo-poo it and say, oh no, it'll never happen. But I think as people take superintelligence more seriously, they're also going to take the idea of an economic singularity more seriously. So then they say, all right, well, if machines do take all our jobs, how will we find meaning in our lives? And I think this is precisely the wrong question. We find meaning in our lives, some of us, through our work, but most of us not. If you are working in a checkout, on a checkout in a supermarket or delivering parcels in a, in a van, which is the kind of work that most people do around the world, then your work might give you a structure to your life. It might give you a reason to get up in the morning and it certainly puts food on the table, which is its primary function. It doesn't really give you meaning. You might get meaning if, from, your, from your job if what you're doing is creating really interesting images to convey a brand message or if you're designing policy for a government. But only a minority of people do that kind of work. And even those people really get their meaning in life from their friends and from their family and from their hobbies and from their intellectual pursuits. And that's where we will get meaning in a post-jobs world. However, the right question to ask is how do we pay for it? How do we get the resources for a really good standard of living to everybody who has no longer got a job. And almost nobody is thinking seriously about that. Now, ironically, I now think we might get to superintelligence much, much faster. So we, 
we'll never actually go through the economic singularity. We'll just go straight to superintelligence. But if it doesn't work out like that, if, if we do go through a stage where machines take all the jobs, and there's lots more jobs, we keep creating lots more jobs, but machines take all those jobs, we do have to figure out what kind of an economy will take care of all of us. And I think it's the economy of abundance, which means that the cost of all these goods and services you need for a very good standard of living, not a basic standard of living as is applied, implied by universal basic income, but a very good standard of living, the cost of all of that is really, really low. Not nothing because you want to retain the market, but low. How you do that, how you pay for it through taxes, how you get from here to there are very big subjects, which very few people are thinking seriously about. That's our big missing. I totally agree. And it's something we've talked about on here in the past. I have a theory. I'll go one larger that I have a theory that I think what this ultimately leads to is sort of a Star Trek type arrangement where there is no money at some point. I, we won't see it in our lifetimes, but I think at some point if, if AI doesn't kill everybody, it will just get to the point where money is essentially meaningless and, and it, it will cease to have value. And people will still work and they'll do things, like you said, because they enjoy doing them and particularly service work and things like that. You know, People like interactions with other people and I think that will continue. But I think by and large, at some point, that's, that's going to be where it ends up. If, again, if it doesn't kill us all in the meantime. So no, I totally agree. And um, I think that's a great spot to end the conversation. That's quite positive. And uh, I think everybody's staying at home and not having to work and having some basic income so they can go and do- Better than basic income. Better than basic income and, uh, and time to pursue their, in, their, their personal interests, I think sounds like, a, sounds like a grand plan. Yeah, let's head towards the Star Trek economy. Excellent. Callum, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And we'll follow up. There'll be full show notes and everything and a transcript on the website. So we can grab that later if we need to. Well, thank you, David. It's been good fun. Cheers. Okay, folks, that's a wrap on another amazing episode of Creatives with AI. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you want to stay up to date on how all things related to AI is impacting the creative industries, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform is. We're on them all. And follow us on social media. We're on mainly Twitter and LinkedIn, but we're the same handle everywhere, which is at Creatives with AI. We'd also really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are our two main platforms, and it really helps other listeners find the show, and it also helps us get more popularity and more exposure. So it'd be amazing if you could help us with that. If you've got any questions, topic suggestions, guest recommendations, feel free to send us an email. The best email is hello at creativeswith.ai, or you can shoot us a message on social media. Either one is fine. We love hearing from all of you and we can't wait to bring more exciting episodes in the future. And the best way we can do that is to get feedback from the audience and have the audience tell us who it is you'd like to hear from and what things you'd like us to ask and what topics you'd like us to talk about. So please use that. Let us know what you want to hear and we'll do our best to get it for you. And last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Future Hand Limited, who make this podcast possible. Your support means the world to us. And we really appreciate it. So thanks very much. That's it for today. So until next time, take care, everybody, and stay curious.